everyone. This is Kelsey Litchfield joined by Karen Corrigan, and this is Girls Talk Ag. Today we have a very special guest come into Girls Talk Ag, Julie Hewitt from Illinois Nutrient Research and Education Council. Julie, thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. So we're all Illinois based here. We all saw the snow that came in, but I can say where I'm located, usually we get much more snow, I feel like, than you guys do. So I was more than happy to give you all that snow this go around, right? Yeah, take it back. <laughs> no, they <laughs> almost a foot, but you know, you see part of my lawn is bare and then there's three foot drifts on the side of the garage. So, and I love the little snowplow guy who comes through for the village and always puts everything right up into my driveway. So absolutely. I had that yesterday too. Yes. Luckily, the neighbor saw a couple of us shoveling and he felt pity on us and came and did the worst part of it with a snowblower. So aren't those things magical? I tell you, everybody needs a neighbor with one. Exactly. (laughs) I don't want to have to mess with it. I don't want to have to like get it started and do all that kind of stuff. But I I like that my neighbors all have them. Mm -hmm. They'll be buying my neighbors some beef. (laughs) (laughs) My dad has a commercial lawn mowing and snow plowing business so when it snows I get called to work and I will say snow plowing is not as easy as it looks there's definitely an art form to it especially if you're doing lots not just like roads you're doing businesses I have a whole new respect for those people because wow and you are driving in conditions that are not favorable either and that just adds to my anxiety well it was so windy that regardless of what you did it just kind of blew right back in Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's over and done with. Did it help, Karen, any of the moisture levels in the fields, you think? Or, it or was Julie, a pretty dry snow. I mean, it was dry and fluffy. It didn't even really make good snow ice cream, which is all we care about in this household mm-hmm. with my kids. But um, I mean, any moisture we get is going to be helpful to rebuild yeah. our subsoil moisture. Now, the guys in Iowa probably needed it more than we did. But, you know, I guess we'll take it when we can. Yeah. Hey, winter's not over yet, even though I'm kind of hoping that is our last big snow. Yeah. I, I'll take an inch or two, but I don't want any more five plus inch snowstorms. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of nice. It's crazy though, that it's been, you know, it's the first of February and it's really the first snow that we've had of the year. Yeah. for That's what I was thinking. This is like our third big snowstorm. So I'll, like I said, I'll gladly hand it over to you guys. <laughs> and speaking of just watching out the window, snowplow just went by. So Julie, you are the executive director of Illinois NREC, which is also the Nutrient Research and Education Council. Where are you based out of? So officially we're based out of Springfield. Um, we are separate from the Illinois Department of Ag, but we have a really close relationship with them. Actually, our whole council, our board is appointed by the director of Ag. So I have an office in Springfield, um, but I permanently work from home. So even pre-COVID, I was working from home. So in Hayworth, just south of Bloomington. Working from home. So do you travel quite a bit um, going to different conferences or meetings and things like that? Yeah, you know, in, in, 
pre-COVID times, it was really rare that I would spend an entire week um, in my office. You know, it was a lot of a lot of meetings, mostly state-based. We don't do a lot of travel outside of the state, um, but spend a lot of time on campus, um, particularly at the University of Illinois. Also, spend a lot of time in Carbondale. Uh, we do a lot of work with the folks down at SIU uh, Carbondale. And then really just working with our stakeholders. So our, you know, our farmers, the retailers, and then the agency folks at uh, Department of Ag and the EPA. How long have you been with NREC? So I started in this role in 2015. So NREC was actually created by state statute back in 2012. Um, and for the first two and a half years, um, it was managed by the Illinois Fertilizer and Chemical Association. So Jean Payne um, and her crew really took care of all the administration um, of the organization. But as sort of the, the role and the focus on nutrients in the state increased, they realized they needed to have a full-time person working. So I started in 2015 um, as the only staff member. And then in 2018, we hired uh, Dr. Shani Golubai, um for our research manager. So we're a really small staff. It's just the two of us. Um, and she is based in Bond County in Illinois. So we uh, we divide and conquer the state an awful lot. Yeah, That's what I was what thinking. What is the overall about. purpose of the NREC? Absolutely. So NREC is funded through an assessment. So all farmers in the state pay an assessment of 75 cents per ton on all the fertilizer that they purchase. It's collected through the retailers. So we're different from a checkoff. We are an assessment, but a lot of people are so familiar with like the corn or soybean checkoff. So it operates pretty much the same way. Um, but then the purpose is it's really just our, our title. And that is to pursue um, research opportunities related to nutrient efficiency. And so we're really looking at how you can utilize, best utilize nutrients. And I always think about meeting the three needs. When we put a nutrient out, it has to work for us agronomically, it has to work for us economically. And then a big focus of what we do is making sure that it also works environmentally. So not having a negative impact um, on the environment. And really those three things all come together you know, if you're using, if you talk about four R's and you're using the right rate, then you're meeting your needs agronomically because you have what your plant needs, your crops needs, then it's economic if we're using, you know, the MRTN or the maximum return to nitrogen. And if we've got the right rates out there and we're putting it out, you know, in the right format and the right timing, we're reducing the chances of losing it to our environment. Mm -hmm. So that's our real focus. We are separate from the nutrient loss reduction strategy, which is you know, our statewide goal to reduce nutrient losses um, through our waterways, but we work really closely with that group. Okay, see, I didn't realize that was something completely separate. Yeah, it's, it, it gets confusing because we really started about the same time. Um, the, the strategy, the original strategy that we're operating under now was released in 2015. So, you know, about that, about the same time, um, but we are a support mechanism, but we aren't uh, directly part of that strategy. You said created in 2012, you started in 2015, you have a staff of two now. You're really growing because conservation and the environments, it's really coming to the forefront of people want to focus on, farmers want to focus on um, having a part of their operation. So I see a lot of growth in that area that I assume you are too, and it stays busy. Absolutely. Well, and you know, we're 
kind of the unique situation in Illinois. It, it's gotten a little bit better, but if you think back to 2015 and state funding for any sort of research really has just not been available. So um, since 2012, through the investment that Illinois farmers and retailers have made, we've invested over $30 million into nutrient research. So, you know, that's money that wasn't gonna come from anywhere else. Um, and again, kind of going back to that strategy, the goal by 2025 is to reduce the amount of phosphorus that we lose by 25% and the amount of nitrates by 15%. And then we ultimately have a goal to reduce both of those by 45%. But what's, again, it's Illinois and the way things kind of work sometimes budget-wise is we have these great grand uh, uh, goals but no funding to support that. So, you know, that is part of the role that we've had is, is to make sure that the research is out there. We also really recognize the importance of peer-reviewed science. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of companies that are doing their own research, but they're trying to sell a product. And that's, again, what kind of makes us unique is we're not selling anything. Um, we're, we're providing the science that can help farmers and retailers make decisions. Mm -hmm. What are some of the projects that you have going now? So we really kind of, I would say we would divide our project, um, kind of going back to that whole meeting the needs uh, agronomically, economically, and environmentally. I, we divide them into some categories. So the first would be just in-field practices. So primarily, if you think about the four R's, so the right product, the right rate, the right time, and the right placement, right? I think I got them all. Um, so it's really about being as efficient as we possibly can be on the front end. Um, you know, it's things like best management practices of not applying on frozen and snow covered ground. <laughs> um, Which there's you know, a story about that, Kelsey. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. There was it's, a post on Twitter the other day and I was like, hmm, and I sent it to Julie and she's like, oh, goodness. <laughs> and I don't think it was long before that post was done. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's, it's one thing to not follow best management practices, but perhaps we should not be tweeting about it. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> with photos not just this yes. is what we were doing <laughs> and it was the person who did it it wasn't like somebody catching them doing it <laughs> right usually when I see it it's somebody that's like trying to tattle but this was the the company very proud of themselves <laughs> at least did for they minute. did they take it down it, yes. yeah oh okay good <laughs> it's like crisis <laughs> communications ready to go <laughs> exactly exactly so we kind of start again with that, what you do in field. So being as efficient as possible on the front end. Um, you know, we know, obviously, we're never going to be 100% efficient on the front end. You know, we, we obviously are 100% dependent on the weather. And if mm -hmm. we knew what was going to happen, um, then we could get closer. Um, so then the next thing would be capturing those excess nutrients in the field. So that's really where cover crops come in. A lot of our yeah. research is done um, on cover crops. So we look at that aspect of, you know, how can we capture it in field and then make it available um, for the next growing crop? Um, the next area would be edge of field. So if we weren't 100% efficient on the front end with managing the nutrients, we didn't capture all of them through the cover crops, then there are mechanisms to capture those nutrients before they get into our waterways. So those are things like saturated buffers, um, constructed wetlands, wood chip bioreactors, mm -hmm. and then just overall drainage water management. Um, so again, 
at that point, the nutrients are lost. They no longer have an agronomic benefit, but we can reduce the impact environmentally. Um, and then finally, we have a lot of projects that really fall into that emerging technology. So one of the things that we're, we're excited about, and it's a really cool partnership, is a phosphorus product that's called Struvite um, that actually becomes from recycled wastewater. So uh, Dr. Andrew Marganot is the scientist at the University of Illinois who's working on that project. Um, and it really is, it comes the uh, MWRD, which is the Municipal Wastewater Reclamation District of Chicago, which is the largest wastewater uh, treatment facility in the world. They're able to pull the phosphorus out of wastewater, recycle it into a phosphorus product that can be used on farm. Like a dry um, product? It is, it is. And so you can mix it. Um, they, Andrew's research is showing that you can replace up to a half of your uh, phosphorus product with the struvite and not lose any sort of yield potential. We think it could probably go higher. The issue is of course, with a lot of these things is scalability. So how much mm -hmm. struvite can they actually produce? Um, but it does have a great- Right, right. And it, but it is cool. It's got that, it's a closed loop. You know, you're, you're taking wastewater, you're recycling it, you're using it and putting it back into, um, into on-farm applications. But you're not really replacing your phosphorus product. You're just using another product in its place. Exactly. Exactly. And it's a slow release product as well. Um, so, you know, we're, we're seeing some, there are some folks that are using it that are really happy with it, but again, the availability is pretty small. Um, but we do save a portion of our research dollars to go into some of those emerging things. Because I, I think that's one of the things we look at is we've known about four R's for ever. I mean, how long have we <laughs> been yeah. hearing? You know, they were they, we were talking four R's when you and I started working in the industry. Um, we get more efficient and we have better understanding, um, but we know there's still a lot of work to be done. And if we're going to be held accountable for the nutrients that are leaving our state via our waterways, we need to have some other practices um, or other technology that can help us to manage those. Well, and recycling that phosphorus, I mean, would be awesome, especially in years like this where the you know fertilizer products are sky high. And that's exactly. something that we wouldn't have to worry about being tariffed or coming in from other countries we would just get it from within the state. So absolutely. Yeah. That seems like a pretty, pretty good investment to be at least looking at. Oh yeah, yeah. Especially right now. Emerging technology that always interests me to see what's being done for the future and also taking these current issues such as um, inflation input increases, seeing that happening right now. And it's good to see what's being done and hopefully in the future to overcome something like that. So it's, it's good to see things happening. And as a person who's been in a field where they've put on the sewage sludge, I'm really happy to know that it's getting cleaned out and recycled into a better product. Because when you're the only girl in the field after it's been applied and you start seeing all this stuff that people throw down their toilets, you're like, oh my <laughs> God. It's not mine. I didn't do it. <laughs> like, no, 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 it's not me. It's not me. I know. And then you start seeing, well, yeah, there's no way I could have done all of these. But yeah, it's just gross. <laughs> so yeah. I'm glad to hear that they're recycling it and taking the product out of the water as opposed to just applying whatever people put on their down their toilets. Right, right. Well, and you know, that's one of our other like kind of, we work really closely with MWRD. So again, uh, Municipal Wastewater Reclamation District. Because- um, 
you know, the, the strategy really involves both agriculture, which we would be considered non-point source, and our point source partners. So that would be, you know, the municipalities, wastewater treatment facilities, um, all of those types of folks. And, you know, we as agriculture, obviously, because we're non-point, our, our, what we're discharging is not measured. There's not a way to measure it, you know, think, we don't ever want to get to a point where they say, hey, we're going to monitor every tile outlet and we're, you're going to be held responsible, you know, for what's coming out of your particular tile. But when we look at our, our municipal partners and those point sources, they are, you know, they're regulated. They are measured. They are held accountable to a certain level of discharge. And so MWRD and all of the other wastewater treatment uh, facilities have really been focused on this issue. And they, they have really met all of their goals. You know, as agriculture, we're still trying to, to meet ours. The point source folks have met theirs. Um, granted, they're not subject to all of the, the weather related patterns that we are. They're in a much more controlled um, position. But kind of Karen, going back to your, the sludge, you know, there's a farm in uh, Fulton County that, that was purchased by MWRD. That is where until the seventies, they were barge loading <laughs> The, the waste down and basically pumping that sludge onto this farm ground. Um, but it is now a great partnership. They do a ton of research out there. Um, obviously the, the heavy metals are extremely high. The phosphorus levels are extremely high, but it's a great place. You know, we kind of laugh. It's like the Disney world of conservation practices because um, you put them in the worst, the worst possible scenario with the highest, you know, soil, you know, content of those, of those nutrients, and then try to control it. But we do a lot of research out there and, and partner closely with them. So it's been a great way to, to build that relationship. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to what you were talking about earlier with cover crops. Um, this is cover crops. I'm, we're seeing a lot more of, a lot more people are adapting this project. Can you talk about any of the projects within cover crops that NREC has been doing and what kind of results they are seeing? Sure. And, you know, a big portion of our, of our research dollars have gone towards cover crops. And part of that is because it's driven by the strategy. So if you look at the strategy, the practice that other than switching away from, from perennial or switching to perennial crops and away from, uh, corn and soybeans, that's, that's our best chance to reduce our losses. Um, but the practice that really has the most opportunity and probably the best chance of being incorporated is cover crops. But we also know there's a ton of questions. Um, yeah. And again, it goes back to there's questions agronomically, like when do I plant? What do I plant? Uh, how do I manage? How do I terminate? How do I manage the cash crop following that? Well, I think it's important that only the cover crops to note that only the cover crops that actually have spring growth capture those nutrients. Right. So if you're going to do something like oats or radishes that are going to have a winter kill, those aren't going to affect the actual um, uptake of the nutrients. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they are, and they serve like the radishes that serve a purpose from a soil health perspective. You know, they can help right. break up your compaction. They can do some of those other things, but right from a nutrient uptake a mix is what we see a lot of folks using um, through most of the central part of Illinois. Uh, cereal rye has been the go-to. 
but we've got quite a few project, uh, projects that are looking at what other alternatives are out there. You know, we've heard people, there's people that have done the triticale, there's people that have done a mix, a clover mix. Um, we've got some folks that are using winter wheat as a cover crop, okay. so not necessarily as a cash crop, um, because the you, know, you can't remove it as a cash crop, then you lose the value of that. But so bin run wheat seed might be cheaper for some people as opposed to buying cover crop seed. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And so we're seeing, you know, a lot of folks that are looking at that. Um, it also, you know, the biggest thing is, is the more acres we can get that have something growing on them year round, the higher our likelihood of meeting some of our goals. So we, we've got a lot of research looking at just being able to apply a metric to how much loss, nutrient loss is accomplished by using a cover crop. And so one of our one of our really big projects that we refer to a lot is a paired watershed project that's in McLean County um, in Illinois. So just kind of in that Bloomington Normal area. And it's in the Lake Bloomington watershed. And so we have one, uh, one small sub watershed that is cover cropped and the other one is not. We, the farmers that are in the, the cover cropped um, watershed manage it however they would manage the rest of their acres. The only difference is it has a cover crop on it. So the, that would be our control really. And we're seeing you know, up to, depending on the year, up to a 40% reduction in the amount of nitrates that are lost in the cover cropped versus non-cover cropped areas. So we know, you know from a nutrient um, uptake that it works. Now, some of the questions are, when does that, when do those nutrients become available again? And what form do they become available? How do we make sure that that next crop can take them up? Um, Lots of questions. Yeah, and so we actually just published a new cover crop guide. Um, It came out right at the end of 2021. It's been really well received and it's a, you know, I always kind of say, like, I think back to my college days when you would read the like, you know, economics for dummies. This is kind of like cover crops for beginners. I won't say dummies, um, but it's really for folks that have not done cover crops, haven't had a lot of experience and kind of the, the best place to start, which is cereal, rye, um, following corn, going to soybeans. I always tell people that it's not something you want to jump into. And one of the best strategies is to talk to somebody who's done it and done it well and learn from their mistakes. So obviously yeah, the first I, few years when it was really popular, we had some issues getting it killed and then they put rye yeah. before corn, which has some agronomic issues. And so you really want to make sure you do some research and avoid yeah. mistakes made by others. That's yeah. when I talk to people about cover crops. There's so much hesitation because it seems like such an undertaking, but with anything you start small and grow it and each field and each farmer is different. Um, so a, a cover crop guide would definitely help. It's like kind of your one-on-one to get started and, and, and cover crops can still seem new to some people, even though they might be around for a while, it's still a new concept to some, or maybe now others are just now seeing it happen more. So now they're considering taking it on. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, if with all of this, when we think about all of the, all of the conservation farming, all of the management we really encourage folks to look at it from a systems approach. Um, Cause if you're just like, oh, I'm gonna do cover crops. You gotta think about, okay, what is the purpose? What is, how is this part of the system? You know, do you need to change? Do we need to start talking more about strip till? Um, you know, thinking about how that might fit in, um, utilizing again, the cover crops as part of a system. 
And one of the things too, and I, and I'm sure you guys are the same way when we talk about carbon markets, um, Mm -hmm. I think every other call that I'm on and meeting that I go to, there's a talk about carbon markets. And that was another topic we talked about for today too. together right um but I think you know one of the things is we're we're obviously not in a position that we're going to say you know go with this company and sell your carbon credits and do this but we want to make sure that we can help farmers understand one what the potential is for carbon sequestration in their fields what particular practices the impact that those practices can have on the carbon that's available in your soils because you know it's kind of like if you again think back to college days and and selling widgets, if we're trying to sell carbon as a widget, but we don't understand the value of it, and we don't understand all of what takes to get to that, we kind of end up in a mess. And that's been my concern Mm -hmm. from a a farmer perspective is we're, we are so used to being price takers. (laughs) And it feels like this carbon market is an opportunity for, for the industry to be more of a price maker. But as I see more and more, you know, investment groups and all these other folks getting involved, we're quickly going into a price taker mode. And, you know, my, like, this is not the NREC perspective. This is my perspective is when we're talking about how, what that carbon value is, is it makes sense to me that if as a large company, so let's say it's, you know, Karen Corrigan Incorporated, and you have to reduce your carbon footprint by X number of units, and it's going to cost you, $20 million to do that, you divide that out. And that's what the value of a carbon credit is because it shouldn't be, you know, what's involved in the input. It's what it's worth at the end market. It should take a lot to pay out my guilt here. That's basically (laughs) what we're doing. Exactly. We're trying to alleviate my guilt in the eyes of the consumer by buying the carbon credits. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, but so our, again, our goal is not, you know, to encourage people to enter that market or anything, but it's to help farmers understand where that value is and what type of practices, what impact that can have. Um, We've had a lot of questions on carbon markets in our meetings so far this winter. And a lot of it starts with, well, I've been no-tilling for 30 years. I can't get a carbon credit unless I plow it up and start over. And so we need to find a way where they can get credit to continue the practices they're doing. And then the other subject that keeps coming up, my business partner does a lot of work through the World Bank. And so he has a lot of contacts that he works with in the Ukraine. And one of the people there said, we don't understand why you need a carbon markets. Why are the farmers not just directly selling to the large companies and cut out the middleman? (laughs) So that's something to look at too. Right. Right. And I suppose the bigger bar or, you know, some organization like the Farm Bureau or something that pulls all these farmers together, you know, that might be an aspect versus going through a brokerage, which is going to take a large portion of the actual profit. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, you know, we, there's obviously practices like cover crops have a lot of opportunity to sequester that carbon. Um, and so, you know, some of the other things we look at is um, Lowell Gentry, who does a lot of the work for us, um, again, out of the University of Illinois, um, really has been looking a lot at soil mineralization. Um, one of his big studies that's related to cover crops was, and really kind of came about, isn't that how a lot of our science happens, is you have some weird thing that happens and it, it gives you a new perspective. But um, back in 2019, when we had so much rainfall and we had so much tile flow, 
he was able to detect really high uh, tile nitrate levels following a soybean crop. So, you know, typically when we think about losing nitrates, we think about it, you know, following a corn crop when maybe we didn't hit our yield goal or we had excess nutrients there. But he was really able to tie um, the fact that one, a lot of our tile nitrates are not just coming from over fertilization. You know, I think sometimes uh, the regulators and some of our environmental partners would like to say, hey, just back off, you know, don't use as much fertilizer as you're using. And, you know, there, that is part of it. And I think we really have dialed that down. Um, you know, you think back to, again, Karen, when you and I got started, 1.2 will do was our conversion rate for our, uh, our nitrogen rates. And we don't talk a lot about that ratio, but it's really down to 0 0.7, 0 0.8, if we're going to calculate it that way. I, I, I would say we could safely say 0 0.85 to 0 0.9. You can go lower, but it's going to depend again on the weather. Right. So right. your efficiency is really going to depend a lot on that. So, yeah. Well, and if you look at all of the data with just how much, how much more corn we're able to produce with the same unit of N, you know, there's, there's a story to tell there. Um, so, you know, looking at the mineralization side of things, of course, we do a ton of work with the um, MRTN, the maximum return to nitrogen which we've tried really hard on the education side well, of it. I want to talk a little bit about what that all entails. Okay, okay. So MRTN is the maximum return to nitrogen. And I think sometimes where we get off track a little bit is, um, you know, thinking back to when we used to talk about 1.2 will do, that was purely an agronomic um, yield-based goal. MRTN is an economic tool. So there's the, the nitri nitrogen calculator. If you just search, you know, Illinois nitrogen calculator, um, you can get to it. You put in all of your input prices. So what's been interesting to see is as we have looked at corn prices and fertilizer prices this year is for the same ground, your maximum return to nitrogen, that nitrogen rate is gonna go down um, because it's an economic tool. Now we're, that rate, we're still wanting to maximize our yield, but it really is an economic tool. And that's sometimes where I think we, we lose folks when we talk about MRTN, because they're like, right, but I want to grow, my goal is to grow, you know, 215 bushel corn. So I'm going to multiply it by this. And that works, but from an economic standpoint, there reaches a point where that extra unit of nitrogen doesn't pay for itself. Right. And that's something that they really need to look at in each individual field. And so that's why we're a big proponent of, for all of our fertilizer, using hot streaks and cold streaks. And in the case of nitrogen, using some zero end streaks, just to try and figure out what our soil is actually giving us. And particularly in central Illinois, where we have some of the best soils, you know, we can get a lot from the soils um, just through their mineralization and just from their, you know, fertilizer supply and capacity so absolutely it's that is probably one of my favorite things this year each year is when Dr. Nofsinger puts out the because he does most of the the analytics we work closely with Illinois Fertilizer and Chemical Association to do the NRATE trials so that's a big thing that farmers are funding through NREC is actually getting those trials you know we're feeding that uh feeding that calculator and feeding that model so many data points every year but when Emerson sends us his charts and to see that zero nitrogen, you know, when you're like, 
you got 150 bushels of corn with no nitrogen, like that doesn't make sense. Now, granted, it doesn't no. happen <laughs> everywhere, but it does happen yeah. here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, um, and you know, and again, when you're looking at it from an economic standpoint, not from a yield goal, it, it changes that approach. Um, and so, you know, I think the, and I don't have it right in front of me, but I mean, our, the MRTN for central Illinois for corn following soybeans for 2022 crop versus 2021 crop. I mean, there's about a 15 to 20 pound difference in what that recommended rate would be just based on the economics. We also have to look at, I know one of the times I talked with Shani, she said one of the big issues with phosphorus is our stream bank erosion. Mm -hmm. So there are other places we need to look on our farms, not just within our actual fields where we're applying the nitrogen also. Absolutely. And that's one of the projects that we actually um, just got started. Um, so we funded, we have two different projects actually looking at stream bank erosion. Um, and part of it is, you know, when we think back to the strategy and we talked about, we have our point source folks and non-point, which is agriculture, is when we divided out the responsibility for the for nitrogen, for nitrates that are lost, I mean, it's pretty much like 80-20, like 80% of that falls to agriculture. But on phosphorus, it's about 50-50, about 50% of the issue comes from uh, point sources. And then the rest of it was assigned to us as agriculture. But again, remember, we don't have a mechanism for measuring what actually is coming from production ag. We just got whatever was left that couldn't be accounted for through our point source. And so there has been a lot of talk about all of this legacy phosphorus, the stream bank erosion. Um, Shaney, again, our research director, talks a lot about there's a there's a place kind of in the uh, Shawnee National Forest, which we are doing some work in. Where there's no production agriculture. There never has been, there has never been commercial fertilizer that is put in there. As Shaney says, and I'm sure Karen, you appreciate this, it's where Snow White is talking to the animals. Like it's this pristine, <laughs> you know, ground in the forest, but yet the phosphorus levels in that water are high. So we know it's not coming from fertilizer phosphorus. Um, you know, is it coming from leaves that are, that are degrading, what's it coming from, you know, that, those types of things. So we are doing some work looking at that. Um, and it doesn't absolve us of responsibility in production agriculture, but it helps us to understand sort of what we can control and what we can't. Julie, a question I have for you is adoption of practices. I was thinking about what you're seeing when it comes to farmers adopting these practices I, I, from my observation, I can see probably people are more willing to do so nowadays than probably ever before, but what's your take on trying to adopt cover crops or anything else to um, ensure the soil fertility of the land? Well, you know, in Illinois specifically, and, there, and there's programs obviously in other states as well, I'm just not as familiar with them, but one of the things in Illinois, um, our Department of Ag had a fall covers for spring, I can't remember the exact wording of it, but they basically had a cost share program. So anytime we put some cost share out there, our adoption rates go way up. So we, we measure through um, USDA NAS, uh, Illinois NREC. So again, farmers and retailers fund a large survey looking at adoption and awareness of um, conservation practices, particularly practices that are, that are in the strategy. Um, and so one of the things we look at is on cover crops, of course, 
So we went from in, in 2011, which was the first um, reference year that we utilized in the strategy, we showed that there were, oh, roughly 600,000 acres um, in Illinois that farmers reported as being in cover crops. And that would be both um, on tiled and non-tiled ground. We break that out just because that's how it is in the strategy. And we went closer to almost 2 million acres in the 2019 survey. So the 2021 survey is actually going to be hitting farmers mailboxes um, here in Illinois this week um, or maybe next week. So we're going to start collecting that data. I mean, that's a pretty big increase. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at that, 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 you know, 600,000 acres to 2 million acres, but that's still a really small percentage of all of the corn and soybean acres in the state. So we know we've got some some work to do there. Work well, to do, but it's trending in a good direction. It is. I think there's some other reasons why you're going to start seeing that increase. Dr. Trannell at Illinois, who's one of the weed scientists, he just did a webinar on the metabolic resistance that we have mm -hmm. to herbicides. And he said in his um, I will take action webinar that in 10 years, herbicides won't be our first choice for weed management. And that in itself is going to help increase cover crops because cereal rye is a great tool to use to decrease particularly water hemp populations. So I think we'll see some increase for other reasons because the cover crops do have more than one beneficial aspect. Absolutely. And I think that is, you know, and the other thing we talked a little bit about carbon markets, if this does develop, you know, then that becomes a driver um, as well. And, you know, and what, what I've always said, particularly to, to my friends and colleagues that don't work in production ag, is that, yes, farmers are stewards of the land. I mean, it, even if you don't want to be, if you're going to be profitable and have your farm be sustainable, not sustainable, you know, environmentally sustainable. <laughs> exactly. If you're going to keep farming, you have to make the right decisions. And that most often includes making sound agronomic choices, right? If you're applying twice the amount of fertilizer that you need, you're throwing money away and you're not going to get any more yield because we talk about that MRTN. At some point, you don't get any more yield for that unit of, of nitrogen. And um, I think that's kind of like a, a long running story though. When fertilizer was cheap, they did pour it on and now they're still paying for that image, even though they don't do that due to the prices and what they've, you know, just their growth and their knowledge that they've come to in their production. Absolutely. And I think too, but at the same time, we can't just go to a farmer and be like, hey, good old boy, good old girl, you want to do the right thing. We don't know how it's going to pay and we don't know what it's going to impact. And by the way, you can't really get the cover crop seed, but come on, just do it to do the right thing. You know, we wouldn't go to a large corporation and have to say, oh, just be a good, be a good person. So that's part of what I think is the value of some of the work that is being done through NREC funding is we're putting the research and the science behind it so that, mm -hmm. hey, this is great. This is, this is sustainable. This is something you should be doing. But by the way, either you can like increase your profit a tiny bit or we're not going to have a negative impact on it. But asking, asking farmers as business people to make these you know, wholesale changes to their operation without having a, a benefit to them mm -hmm. is, um, it's just not realistic. Well, it's not and I measurable. Think, yeah. 
you know, it's not like if I put on cover crops, I get this many bushels, you know, you have right. to look at, well, maybe at some point I'll be able to decrease my herbicide use. Maybe I'm going to have more mineralization. So I'll have more efficiency and I won't have to put on as much, but that's not something that you can say, if you do this, you get this kind of thing. Absolutely. You know, and I think about too, like different parts of, of my career, I've, I've worked in a lot of different areas, but at one point when I worked for an advertising agency, I had two clients that were in manufacturing. And to me, that was so eye-opening because I've spent most of my career in production ag. And so we, we understand that you have one chance, <laughs> you know, like you put that crop in and your highest potential is the day that you open that bag and then you lose potential every day, really, you know, you're going to maximize it. But then to be then in a manufacturing setting where they can tweak things on the production line daily, hourly, sometimes to the minute. And if something isn't working, you tweak it and you change it and you can increase your productivity. We don't have that advantage in agriculture. And we, our biggest inputs, we don't have any control over. We can't control the weather, right? So we have to make the decisions with the best starting knowledge and then and it works exactly and then pray for good weather right but if we're starting off you know it kind of goes back to that whole model if you already start off and we're as efficient as we possibly can be on the front end then we've we've maximized that potential knowing that you know things can change but if if we go out and you know, put 100% of our, uh, of our nitrogen out in the fall as anhydrous with no inhibitor, you know, the chances of that being there when your crop needs it is pretty limited. But we also now have the science to be able to say to you, even if it doesn't necessarily hurt your yield to go heavy with your fall anhydrous, there is an environmental aspect. You don't, you may not necessarily see it in your yield, but we're going to see it in our, in our tile. But you also have to be able to change on the fly. So I was working a call, I think it was two years ago now. They had cut their end rates a little bit to kind of, you know, come down more to within the range they should be. They put it all on as liquid. That weekend, they got 10 inches of rain and they didn't put any more on. So, you know, there, you have to think through the whole situation and make sure that, you know, you're changing daily, you know, what your what your plan might be because you can't, when you put your nitrogen on, you can't plan that you're going to get 10 inches of rain that weekend. So, I mean, you hope to God you don't, but, you know, so there's different, different ways. So in those cases, some of the anhydrous did hold better as opposed to the, the liquid. So yeah, you have to hope for the best when the weather comes around. Right. Well, and I think too, you know, one of our, one of our ultimate goals, I think as an industry is to avoid regulation. And so those things like, you know, not knowing you're going to get 10 inches, you know, there, there are places in the United States where we're growing corn and soybeans that if there's even a like slight indication that you might get some rain in the next 48 hours, you're not legally allowed to put that product out. And so we really want to avoid any sort of, of regulation. We want it to be, you know, voluntary adoption of these practices and, and, um, and you need to think individually about your fields. You know, you have sandy fields and you have heavy fields that are going to be able to hold more. And so you may have to switch to a field that can hold more water and not as much on the sandy if that's the weather that's coming. Absolutely. Absolutely. It can't be just to get in the field and get it done as fast as I can right. so I can, you know, get to right. the list or whatever the livestock farmers just, say. Just, just crank it out, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
Julie, how can people find out more information about the projects and the research Illinois INREC is doing? And since we do have a um, audience outside of Illinois as well, how, what advice do you give to them to find out about what their own state is doing perhaps? So the best way to get information about what's happening um, with Illinois NREC is through our website, which is just IllinoisNREC.org. Um, we really try to utilize all forms of communication. You know, anytime I do a survey that says, hey, farmers, how do you want to hear um, about what we're doing? They say all of the things. I always say if I could find a way to like carrier pigeon the message to people, <laughs> I would do that. Um, I haven't been able to figure out how to do that. So, but our website is a great starting point. And then that connects you to all of our other things, you know, social media, we're on Twitter and Facebook, um, YouTube. We do a lot of video work. Um, you know, I, as an adult learner myself, I do really well with video, um, particular, particularly video that also has the PowerPoint slide so I can see it and hear it all at the same time. So we have a lot of that on our YouTube channel. And, you know, one of the things we've seen is that in, in Illinois, our funding mechanism is very unique. So we are, we're funded by an assessment that farmers and retailers pay that comes into our organization. We're separate from um, our, our agencies, you know, we really operate independently, but closely with them. And each state, particularly in the um, Mississippi River Valley, as we come through, um, almost all of the states that would contribute water to the Mississippi River have a program or a system that's somewhat similar to what we're doing here in Illinois. The biggest differences would be the funding. So in Iowa, for example, there's an Iowa NREC. Um, we actually stole the name from them, um, which worked out well. But um, they are funded, they're a line item in the state budget. So they are funded directly um, through the state. Um, they are partnered really closely with Iowa State um, University. A lot of the work happens there. They're, they are more focused on the metric side of it. And they do some like, you know, applied research, but a lot of it is that adoption, um, understanding, you know, what type of information is needed, those types of things. Um, Missouri has an NREC, uh, Minnesota, South Dakota, um, really all of the states that are sort of in that Mississippi River, River Valley are working on these issues. Some of our focus is a little bit different, um, but we are unique in the fact that ours is paid for by farmers and by the retail industry. Well, and I know Illinois and Iowa get pegged with a lot of the stigma from putting the nitrogen and the phosphates down into the Mississippi River and into the Gulf. But I believe on that um, computer program that you had shown us at the Farm Progress Show, there's actually 33 different states that feed down into the Mississippi in some way. Absolutely. And that is a really cool tool. So if, if you're sitting at a computer and you just search River Runner is the name of the program, it is this fantastic model system that a, a college student built and it's built on USGS data, but you go in and you can drop a pinpoint basically anywhere and see how that water flows to the Gulf of Mexico. And yeah, like, like Karen said, 33 states feed into that, what actually ends up dumping into the Gulf of Mexico uh, through the Mississippi River. I mean, you have to get to like Western Idaho before it goes West and not come South and East. So. Right. Well, and it was at, at Farm Progress Show when, when the crowds were a little slow. It was one of those going back to, I remember learning about the Continental Divide, like in high school, but I hadn't really thought about, but that's really where it's kind of 
if you go into Colorado, you're close to, or Wyoming, anyway, you eventually hit a point and it goes to the Pacific versus going to the Gulf of Mexico. So it's kind of a fun tool to play with. And actually they've now upgraded, he's upgraded the maps and you can do the whole world. And wow. Where the water flows. It's fascinating. Well, you think 33 out of 50 states, that's more than half. So yeah, well, it's good information to have. Julie, is there anything we didn't hit on today? Tons of good information. Um, so is there anything else that we missed that you wanted to make sure you said on the podcast? You know, I think the biggest thing is, is just how, how this investment that Illinois farmers um, through their real retail partners have made. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, hey, as Illinois farmers, we're committed to this nutrient issue, but, you know, we're every year putting in about $4 million that's coming directly from farmers, you know, with the help of the retailers. Um, it's not just giving lip service to it. It is, they're, they're putting dollars into it. Um, we're being able to move the needle. We're getting the science together. And I think that's the biggest thing is, is, you know, the science really is what drives all of this. Um, there's a lot of philosophy, there's a lot of whatever, but at the end of the day, from our, from this organization, our council knows that the science is what drives it. Um, and that's what we want people to be making decisions is, is based on science that has been peer reviewed. A lot of it is published in, you know, peer reviewed journals. Um, and it, it really has made Illinois the envy of, of a lot of other states because they just don't have the money to be able to put towards that. Julie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was fantastic, Karen. Thanks for the great recommendation of bringing Julie on. I'll give Karen the credit for thinking of bringing Julie on to talk more about NREC and their research. And it's kind of a good conversation heading in towards the spring. I know we started talking about winter and snow and things, but I know a lot of people are thinking about spring and towards the growing season. And it's, it's, good to have these things keeping in mind as they're out in the fields too.